Thank you to our sponsor, Open Society Foundations, an organization that works to build vibrant and tolerant societies whose governments are accountable and open to the participation of all people. Um, one of the, the, uh, the most shocking uh, interviews was we interviewed a white guy, and he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never been discriminated against in my life because of my skin color. Mm. I don't know what you're talking Must about. Be nice. And when he said that, it was just shocking yeah. to all the people of color, because it's like, what? You know, there's a world where you don't even know what that is. The Hashtag Tell Black Stories podcast was created as an extension of Color of Change's Hollywood Culture Project, an initiative changing the rules in Hollywood ensuring accurate, diverse, empathetic, and human portrayals of black people on television and throughout the media landscape. This is Hashtag Tell Black Stories, live from the 2019 Sundance Film Festival. I'm your host, Baratunde Thurston. Our guests today are three incredible men. Rashad Robinson is president of Color of Change and leads the organization in fighting for justice, accountability, and representation for black people. From telling stories about the murder of Emmett Till to the Black Panthers and his new film about the life of Miles Davis, writer, director, and producer Stanley Nelson creates award-winning films that expose injustice and illuminate the power of community. He is the founder of Firelight Media, an independent nonprofit film and video production company in New York City. Patrick Gaspard is president of the Open Society Foundations. Their mission is to protect and improve the lives of people in marginalized communities. Prior to joining Open Society, he served as a senior aide to President Barack Obama, the last real president, as the executive director of the Democratic National Committee and as assistant to the president and director of White House Office of Political Affairs. It's my pleasure to have you join us for Hashtag Tell Black Stories. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Thank you thank for you. having us, man. I want to start down the line with a first question. Why are you here at Sundance? Stanley. Well, I'm here for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of the main reasons is that we're premiering my new film, uh, Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool. So that's great. But also, with the lab we, we run for uh, first-time filmmakers, we have two films here, Always in Season, about lynching, and Words from a Bear, about a Native American writer. So we're also premiering those films here. So we've got three films here, yes. and we're, we're very, very proud. We're proud, too. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Patrick, what brings you to Sundance? Well, first, I wanted to be in the company of these accomplished brothers. I thought it would elevate me a bit. Right. Uh, but uh, Sundance is a space where creative artists and those who would like to be in solidarity with them uh, help enable people to access their rights. We're proud of the Open Society Foundation that we've been able to support the work of documentarians like Stanley and so many others. Uh, and it's extraordinary to be able to come here and to uh, be in, in the trenches with them. Yes, I'm glad you made it. Rashad, what brings you? You know, we've been here a couple of years now, and this is really an extension of our work to amplify the work of creatives and storytellers who are telling the stories that reshape what we think about our society, that reshape the rules, and reshape what we think is possible. Um, it's also part of the work um, that we're constantly doing to try to change the rules. And so many folks um, come to Sundance as rule breakers, mm. as folks that are sort of pushing against the grain of trying to make something happen um, in a in, a, in an industry that oftentimes um, likes to repeat itself over and over again. And so we want to be in that space as well and, and see ourselves not only as an ally, but as an outside force, hopefully helping to clear the terrain uh, for those storytellers. Giving a little nudge. Exactly. Yes. 
So, so this is about telling new stories, telling black stories, and the power of story to shape our reality. When I think about the harm that is possible from stories that exist about us, I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. For me, I remember the first time I realized that the stories that America exports about black people has a real impact on black people. When my friends started traveling around the world and were expected to behave in a certain way because the only image these other people had had of them was as criminals. And that affected their safety and that affected the level of respect or deference that they received overseas. For any and each of you, what was among the first times you realized the power of story to actually harm? We're working on a project that we've been trying to get rolling for, for years on, on the way uh, black sexuality is portrayed in Hollywood films uh, historically. And, and as we started making the film, one thing we realized was that not only does it affect the way others see us, but I think in some ways for us, more importantly, it affects the way we see ourselves. If we don't see ourselves in loving relationships, if we don't see ourselves, you know, hugging and kissing, you know, I mean, for the vast history of Hollywood, we never saw that. We never saw black people hugging. Wow. You know, and so That's what- That's like the, a weird meme right there. Like black people uh, hugging, uh, we should uh, spin that up. Right. What does it do to us? <laughs> yes. And I, I think that that's one of the things that I think is really important. Because we, we, if we don't see it, we can't be it. Right. Or if we only see a certain thing, then that's maybe all we think we can be. Right, right. I, I think there's no greater emotive force in the world than American popular culture. It can be a virtuous force uh, for good and transformation, but it can also be an incredibly toxic force as well. And when you grow up a young black man in America, you, it, the, the influence of the, of the media mm -hmm. uh, culture is inescapable. You realize that there are ways you begin to doubt yourself and your own community and not trust your community because of the depictions that you're uh, receiving. Yeah. Uh, you even doubt your own capacity for a particular kind of vulnerability and intimacy that's necessary to grow your own family. Uh, and sometimes, you have a violent uh, proximity to the consequences. I remember being a young kid uh, going to school in New York and I uh, went to a uh, parochial school that was majority white. And I remember when Roots came out. And for us in our community, it was a space of positivity and aspiration. Yeah, we saw the arc of our history and a kind of pride. But then <laughs> I remember going to school uh, and having white boys calling me Quinta Quinte uh, in a dismissive way and in a way that was intended to kind of impose a particular uh, hierarchy and power structure. And one had to fight against that and understand that even in spaces where you thought uh, you were accessing your power, yeah. it could be easily distorted in ways that have profound and dangerous physical consequences. Yeah. You know, I grew up on Eastern Long Island, the last exit on the Long Island Expressway, a little a town called Riverhead. And, um, oh, yeah. and it's like, you know, 10% Black, and you know, my family got there through the Great Migration from Southern Virginia. There were farmers there, and then farmers on Long Island, and lived on the duck ranches. And so every time I see Long Island duck on the menu, I don't have the same reaction a lot of other folks do. But TV was a lifeline for me. You know, um, we had to fight from an organizing perspective to get someone on the school board or the town council, and and sort of the the reality that I was given about who I was and what the possibilities were. Were, were dictated by just a lack of images, a very narrow set of images. And so TV and movies and growing up in the 80s uh, and seeing um, the rise of TV shows like A Different World and others on TV, for me, I think really did sort of give me sort of a vision about something that was possible that I did not see every day yeah. and that was not being taught in school and that was just 
wasn't my parents' reality either. Mm. And so I, I think that the sort of power for what images that are inclusive um, can do to sort of send us a message about what's possible. Also sort of the day in and day out harmful negative images. And we've just done a lot of ongoing work at Color of Change at really trying to expose um, the impact of those images, but also exposing sort of the systems that allow it to happen. Okay. Um, because you know we just don't want to expose, we want to intervene and create a new set of rules and a new set of incentive structures so that Hollywood does a different job. And that also includes the news media as well. So whether it's looking at sort of the way uh, that black people are portrayed in local media and comparing arrest records, photos, right? the photos, yes. and, or comparing and comparing to actually NYPD arrest records, which we already know is skewed because of broken windows or stop and frisk, mm -hmm. or looking at crime procedures on TV. And uh, the big study that we're releasing in February that will look at um, all the crime procedures on TV and how black people are portrayed and how crime is portrayed. And, and, and how, how crime fighting is best, portrayed. Yes, and yes. how TV can sort of settle us into this idea that things are okay, mm -hmm. that the systems and structures are okay, that um, what may be happening in society is about one bad apple rather than a set of rules and norms that replicate themselves. And so, so much about this industry that has a global reach, mm -hmm. um, but also on a micro level, um, helps us inform ourselves about who we are in society and helps us inform about how we participate and what we think um, our opportunities look like. Having um, a really clear focus on changing culture is so critical. There's the written rules, but there are the unwritten rules. Yeah. I also think those crime procedurals give us a false sense that DNA is everywhere and you can get results back instantly. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's, it's poison jury pools all yes. over. But, but I gotta say, I'm looking at my brother differently now, now yeah. that I know he was inspired by a different world. I could see him as a character on set, right down to the aesthetic of the hat, man. <laughs> he would've fit in. He would've fit in. You're, you're, he would've fit in on that character. Am I subconsciously, it might be subconsciously you know, happening oh, here. Dwayne Wade had the glasses. Totally, man. Rashad's got the hat. I can see him, man. I'll take that any day, you know? I wanna take us to a physical space, an awkward and somewhat public physical space known as Starbucks, which went through a situation last year uh, where a Starbucks employee called the police on two brothers waiting to meet their friend. Stanley, you were called in to, to help in the recovery from the situation. Starbucks famously shut their stores down for a day to do anti-bias training, and you made an eight-minute short film to aid in that process. What's the story of you getting recruited to this, and what was your goal in the story that you shared with these Starbucks uh, associates and members? Well, like, like so many people, I just heard what I heard on the news. I didn't know that much about it. You know, I, I knew what I knew from the news. And we got a call from Sherilyn Eiffel from the NAACP. You always answer those legal calls. Defense fund. Of course, you answer those calls. <laughs> and she kind of brought me in. And, and, and Starbucks said they were closing down all their stores. And one thing they wanted to do was a video for their workers to talk about what, what they called the story of access. And so we did a, we made a video for Starbucks and it was, uh, it was an enlightening process. Um, I think, you know, my feeling was that Starbucks were, they were very genuine about what they were trying to do. I mean, I think they really did, you know, they were shocked by it. I mean, they wanted to see themselves as like this, uh, what do they call it, the third place, yes. you know, that, that, you know, you have home, you have work, and then you have Starbucks. Right. And that's and then, it, right, there's right, no right, other business right, in the buildings in the world. Right, and but you know, I mean, I, I, but I think they really wanted wanted to, to grapple with it. But you know, like, like so many times, you know, when white white folks are 
are exposed to racism, they're like, what, what? You know, like they're, they're shocked by, by, by what to us is normal and every day. And the piece that we did, a lot of it were, was just people talking straight to the camera about their experience as a person of color going into certain spaces. And one of the things that, that we came to realize in making the film is it's something that we don't even talk about ourselves. Mm. I don't talk to my son about the fact that, you know, as I open the door to a store, you know, like, especially like a very expensive store on Madison Avenue in New York, you know, I gotta, <gasps> you know, cause I don't Appreciate know what I, 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 you know, because so cause to my son uh, and my daughters, you know, I wanna be uh, invulnerable, yeah. Yeah. right? Nothing bothers me, I, you know? And so I think it, it became a very revealing um, video that we did with people just talking to the camera about their experiences. Um, one of the, the, uh, the most shocking uh, interviews was we interviewed a white guy. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never been discriminated against in my life because of my skin color. Mm. I don't know what you're talking that about. Be nice. And when he said that, it was just shocking yeah. to all the people of color because it's like, what? You know, there's a world where you don't even know what that is. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it just brought something to light that we had never thought about. Just, just something I just want to add about that remarkable video that Stanley produced and, and just what it means to have real representation in these spaces. So this crisis happens to, to Starbucks and these things have happened to many other multi-billion dollar companies around the world. And the first instinct is to see it not as a real cultural problem in the organization, but as a PR problem. That's right. always the let's first manage instinct. manage the message. Manage the message, let's yeah. get a couple of people in. But when you bring in Sherilyn Eiffel, mm -hmm. who then brings in Stanley Nelson, it's going to compel a kind of authenticity in that space and it's gonna force you know, the CEO of uh, Starbucks, who I understand has other aspirations. And everybody else in the no company. No presidential. But it, but, but it forces all of them and that white man that you described out, mm -hmm. of, their out of their own comfort zone. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and it makes transformation possible. Yeah. Not guaranteed, but right. possible when you have this kind of authentic representation at the table. I'm hearing, you know, Stanley, you've twice brought up the impact internally of the story. Mm -hmm. Not just on how we are perceived, but how we see each mm -hmm. other. And I'm remembering, even with my black male friends, how rare it is to talk about that vulnerability, mm -hmm. to talk about the weight that we carry, the overhead processing, calculating, am I threatening? Right. Am I gonna come across as criminal? Am yeah. I safe? Mm -hmm. Are my hands visible? Right. That is a tax, yeah. right? That's, a, that's an unpaid service right. that we're providing to manage other people's comfort. Uh, because we are perceived as so uncomfortable to so many. So just, I want to thank you for yeah. bringing that up repeatedly now. No, I mean, I, I think that, that, that it is this unpaid tax. It's something that we don't talk about. It's something that sits on us uh, as African-Americans. And, you know, we, we don't have that form to talk about it. And, I mean, I, I don't know if in some ways it's something that we should be talking about all the time, right? right? Mm -hmm. It's something that, that it's too crazy to talk about and painful. But it, it is interesting that in just these little small ways, our our lives are so different, right? You know, I probably have never gone out of my house without thinking about the fact that I am an African-American person, you know, in, in a majority white society, at least, you know, where I live. Um, this is a guy who, who's never thought about it. So it's, it's, it's and, interesting. And, you know, and like throughout the process, um, you know, I, I talked to Howard a couple of times, Howard Schultz and other 
folks. First, they, first name Bezos. I saw that. I was going to say. Thank All you. Right. They were to, All right. Well, he called me I'll by call my first name. He, <laughs> he called me by my first name. Yeah. So, you know, um, he said Mr. Robinson. I'd say Mr. Schultz. Um, and so um, what I'll say is that, you know, what wasn't shocking but was just a clear reminder is that this idea of third place, that, that folks could sort of envision this whole idea of third place, but never have to really kind of grapple with race mm. Um, mm. throughout the mm. whole process, mm. that they could sort of imagine all this, and they could imagine moving these third places to communities that were rapidly changing um, in terms of demographic, where people were sort of competing um, for space mm -hmm. um, and competing for access and sort of the kind of competition for who belongs yes. and who should be visible is just a, a larger question in American society, but that, um, you know, billionaires um, and a huge company could sort of move through, you know, huge expansions and not have to grapple with that. Also for me, the whole exposure does represent sort of the intersection between what media can do and what movements can do. Um, and, and a couple of things, right? White people took out their phones wow. and filmed that. And that sort of like cultural cue for them Film is the a, moment in film the moment and direct arrest. response yeah. and posted is a direct result of a sustained movement by young black folks um, in communities around the country, in cities around the country that have risen up and spoke out and pushed for justice. And they were modeling what they were seeing um, and yes. speaking out. And that one is one. The two is that those men were never charged with a crime, and that is a result of movements in Philadelphia and movements that our organization has been involved with, with electing reform-minded district attorneys around the country yes. that are accountable to communities in different ways. The police did something that they shouldn't have done, but they were never charged. They never had to go through bail. They had never had to go through a set of steps. And, you know, and in talking with Larry Krasner, the district attorney in Philadelphia, um, you know, about the incident who, you know, I made sure that um, Howard Schultz and Larry Krasner had some time to talk, it was just another reminder of all the ways in which these instances are about power and about who has power and how we leverage power. But these instances aren't instances, right? They're, yes, no, it's just, yes, yes, No, 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 yes, you yes, used a really yes, important word, yes. a really important word that I want to bring us back yes. to, which is the word movement. Yep. We have to understand that what occurred that, that culminates in Stanley producing uh, that video and having that conversation mm -hmm. comes from years and years and years of work and investment and mobilization that we call movement, yeah. but then it's also triggered by an opportunity that comes because of a, the birth of a new technology, right? In 1950 in the U.S., 9% of American households had a television in it in 1950. By 1960, 87% of American households had a television. Yeah. So what did that make possible? It makes possible the moment when Rosa Parks and that movement mm -hmm. had been working for a long time through Highlander Center, et cetera, not getting noticed. All of a sudden, you have 87% of Americans who have televisions, and it creates a different proximity to injustice and different possibility for solidarity. So now that when we have cameras, cell phones, that are indeed even more ubiquitous than Starbucks is, we have another possibility for proximity yeah. uh, that can lead to a kind of solidarity. And uh, that's an extraordinary thing. But we have to understand it's not an instant Yes. But an enduring movement yeah. that that has institutions. And so we're prepositioned to take advantage Correct. of that moment yeah. with talented people like Stanley in this case, yeah. as an example. So we've been talking about billionaires controlling a third space where millions, if even billions, of people hang out and being surprised by the impact and the events that could happen on their platforms. And I'm thinking we're not talking about Starbucks, we're talking about Facebook. Because there's the similar dynamics playing out on that platform of who is welcome on Facebook. 
Who gets the right to have an account? Who gets shut down? Who can speak? Who can listen? What is that algorithm connecting or not? And when you look at the cyber attack campaigns of the Russians and the leverage that they used against the United States, building on the racial differences, harnessing black pain to rip this country even further apart, we are entrenched in that story as well. And it feels like an oddly parallel, but even bigger story to think about Facebook as a third space and to think about who's welcome there. And I know Rashad and Patrick in particular, you have been doing work with Facebook. You've been trying to nudge and hold I have not been doing work with Facebook. You've been doing work <laughs> opposed to or trying to hold Facebook accountable. Thank you yes. for correcting me. But how do you think about this new space for storytelling, mm -hmm. which has been so powerful mm -hmm. in the movements that you just cited, mm -hmm. yet also such a challenge for achieving the justice that we all want? You go. <laughs> <laughs> but you're the, you're the principal storyteller story here, yes, my brother. Yes, yes. Like, you guys, 20, yeah, years ago, 20 years ago, we could have this conversation yeah. with the Motion Picture Association, with the Television Academy, mm -hmm. with the recording industry, and we'd reach everybody. Yeah. Now, if you're not having it with Facebook or about Facebook, yeah. you're not reaching anybody. So, Facebook is complicated. I, you know, I, there are status updates. Well, I appreciate that Rashid said that uh, it appears that um, the Russian government uh, has a better understanding of the lives of African-Americans than apparently uh, Facebook <laughs> yeah. executives do. We don't understand the manipulation. But if, you know, if, if you know you're Ralph Ellison, you understand that what the Russians just did with Facebook is not altogether different uh, than what the Communist Party attempted to do in African-American communities mm -hmm. 70 years ago in trying to exploit some of these tensions and, and differences. It's not new. It's just all on steroids right now because of the ability to harvest people's uh, data yeah. uh, and to micro-target. Uh, I appreciate what my brother has been doing in, in, with Facebook and, and really, really uh, pushing them. I appreciate the conversation about Russia. But I think there's something much more profound here that needs to be uh, tackled that I think our storytellers are equipped uh, to do it. When you talk about who's welcome on, on the platform, mm -hmm. too often, and I think um, in altogether wrong ways, uh, the internet is compared to the revolution of the Gutenberg uh, printing press, right? But we have to understand that when the Gutenberg press arrives, it's the first time that one person can communicate with many. But now with the internet, we're in a space where the many, many all at once, can communicate and target one person mm -hmm. in ways that are just violent mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, if you- Informational violence. Informational yeah. violence. And for black women in particular who have a presence on uh, the web, the rhetoric that's directed at them feels physical mm -hmm. uh, to me. And platforms like Facebook have not taken responsibility for the ability of the many to direct hate uh, towards one because frankly, their entire consumer model, their commercial yes. model, uh, is based on the ability to get clicks because of the ability to rise temperature through hate speech. It's based on that algorithm. Yeah. So I think we need storytellers to uh, really begin to uh, perform an important uh, public service for the next generation uh, in giving them the tools that they need in order to appreciate what's being done to them, where they're being organized for the first time, not as citizens, but as consumers. Mm -hmm. uh, and creating the tools that I hope will compel politicians to protect uh, privacy uh, in, in the context of hate speech. And you know, building off of that, it is privacy and then 
It is about um, how do we think about the role of corporations mm -hmm. and big businesses in our society, right? We could be having this conversation about major media outlets, right, and all of the ways that they've been merging over the last several years mm -hmm. and the way that information has been controlled. I remember clearly working on net neutrality and being in the midst of it and being booked on MSNBC to talk about net neutrality, then being canceled when it got up to the top, yeah. um, being canceled, and then they put my op-ed piece in the New York Times about net neutrality up on the air, and then they had someone from the industry mm. um, debunk it. Because they were owned by and, the And then they put up Comcast's yeah. message, and then they went to break. Yeah. And so, you know, Facebook, Google, all of these platforms are willing to get into bed with whatever sort of idea or whatever um, ally that they think is theirs in service of making more money, in service of growth, because that's what they are. And if we don't actually have rules that hold these institutions accountable, and I do think that this is where storytellers come into right, place, right. because we have to build a new type of will amongst the public to recognize that we, we need these, the same way that you know, folks will get out in the street around climate, um, the same way that folks will get out in the street um, around immigration reform, the same way that folks will get out around a whole set of issues, um, we have to build a new set of power, a new set of energy around corporate power because what's happening at Facebook, right, the decisions, they have created this whole space and haven't had to grapple with race. I mean, they don't even grapple with race inside of their own organization. Uh, you know, when we've pressured some of these companies to have to release their racial data, you know, we remember when Twitter was releasing their racial data and they released their data and it was 2% black and we had people at Twitter calling us and saying, just so you know, They've added uh, cafeteria workers and security guards who are fighting for a living wage right now. So make sure you ask them to disaggregate these, the data. It's, it's amazing because these companies are built on monetizing data. data. Like they have the numbers. Yes. We know this because they're selling them to everybody else, to your point, Patrick, to target us for more sales to buy stuff we probably don't want, much less need. Uh, I want to bring us home. And this is about storytelling. You, you brought it back a bit, Rashad, to storytelling. And I want to know in this moment, what new stories do you think we need right now? In the spirit of we're at Sundance, in the spirit of tell black stories, in the spirit of inclusion and more justice, what new stories do you think we need? I think we need new storytellers. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing that we need. We need it, it to be, you know, multicultural stories fr from our people. You know, still we have uh, stories that are told about us, mm -hmm. but not by us, you know. And, and, and I think it's really important that, that we have those stories. I, we are working on a, a massive uh, series on the Atlantic slave trade mm -hmm. that we're just about to start. And it, it's looking at the Atlantic slave trade as this huge global business that, that changed the world. Stanley, um, if, if white people couldn't handle being followed around a Starbucks, <laughs> how are they going to handle yeah. the Atlantic slave <laughs> trade? Have you thought about this, brother? Uh, yeah, I think about it all the time. <laughs> I can say, honestly, I haven't figured it out. But, you know, this, it's, an, it's an important story. Yeah. And, you know, we, we've held conferences with, with scholars all over the world. Mm. And um, mm. the stories that they tell are just fascinating. I mean, it's not just the story of some pirates that, that went and robbed some people from Africa. It's the story of this multicultural business across the world and 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 it went on for hundreds of years the the fact that that the slave trade went on for longer than it's been abolished 
Okay, so that's in, incredible, yeah. and it was just it was just part of the world. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and we don't know anything about it. And there is a lot of scholarship. So how I'm we're going to do it, if that's the question, I, I, I'm not sure, yeah. you know, ex exactly how, how we're going to do it. But, but, but we need to do it. And it's got to be a story that can be told. And we're, we're going to figure it out. Great. I have my support. To answer your question, I'm actually going to give Stanley a little bit more props than he's giving himself. Because okay. what's so incredible for me about the work that you're doing on the Atlantic slave trade is that Stanley is not putting a period in 1865, right? Mm. What he's doing is he's demonstrating the ways in which right now today, there are whole industries like the insurance industry that was created as a consequence of the slave trade and continues to affect economies of scale and the disparities that we have in our society. That is, that's a direct legacy of uh, that trade. So when you ask me what kind of stories uh, we need, I think that we need stories that draw young people up to the fireside of history to help them understand that there's a continuity for better or worse uh, that implicates our d democratic systems and it implicates them uh, in ways that they have agency over. And that's why I'm excited about the work that he's doing on the Atlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. Bring us home, Rashad. What new stories do we need? You know, when, when we go into our work, the writers' rooms, a lot of the writers' rooms that we're in, we're often trying, to, whether it's a medical show or a crime procedure mm -hmm. or kind of fit into these buckets. Um, you know, I would love to disrupt more of these buckets, but, yeah. you know, I constantly am trying to help and help people think about how do we show the inequality that exists is not unfortunate like a car accident, but unjust. How do we tell fuller pictures that we move beyond bad apples? Mm -hmm. And as a person who um, is on the advocacy side of things, there are storytellers who have lived those experiences and can do that work. And I see it as our role is to try to help to create the incentive, to help clear the space, to help challenge the assumptions that are blocking people's opportunity to push back against conventional wisdom or push back against bad data in terms of like what makes money or what doesn't make money in order for more voices. You know, this is, I think, my 10th Sundance. I'm wearing a hat now, and I wore a different hat when I used to come um, as the head of programs of GLAAD. Ooh, I see and, what you um, did there. And, that was and, 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 <laughs> you probably also um, had a different uh, Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, so, um, and so when I was head of GLAAD, right, my role was really how do we um, advance LGBT portrayals that are at the intersection of a wide range of experiences? Mm -hmm. How are we disrupting the kind of willing grace narrative that was out there and pushing for more themes? And as I, like, turn on the TV now and I see a show like Pose on the air and hopefully we'll um, open up more space for folks like Janet Mock and mm -hmm. others mm -hmm. to be leading inside of writer's rooms. As I look at the kind of disruption that is happening because of these um, new platforms like Netflix and Amazon, but I look at the actual data in the aggregate and I see that they're not really doing any better yeah. um, in terms of representation or hiring um, than the incumbents in the space. Um, I just know that there's a lot of work to be done mm -hmm. and that in order to get there, there has to be a concerted effort to constantly shine a spotlight and put a mirror up to the industry and to sometimes light a fire all in the service of ensuring that those who have stories to tell um, get an opportunity to do so. Brothers, thank you for telling your stories today. This has been Hashtag Tell Black Stories. I'm Baratunde Thurston. I've been sitting here with Rashad Robinson, Patrick Gaspar, and Stanley Nelson. Congratulations on this film and good luck. Oh, and I'm you. really looking forward to this Atlantic trade one. On the record, I support you and I will help in any way I can. Thank you so much. Yes. And to our listeners, 
What story would you like to be told? Let us know by using the hashtag TellBlackStories. For more on the hashtag TellBlackStories podcast, visit storytellers.colorofchange.org slash podcast.